pray for our country right now, and then we'll get into our word. Father in heaven, as we just humble ourselves before you, Lord, we do truly want to humble ourselves and call upon you, Lord, that you could hear us, Lord, and you would heal our land. Lord, our, our country, Lord God, we lift it up to you, Father. There's so much that goes on. Lord, from the political to the civic stuff, the local stuff, Lord God, in small towns and big cities, Lord God, there's so much craziness that goes on. And yet, Lord God, in the midst of all your craziness, all the craziness that goes on, Father, we know that you are at work. We know that, God, you are still reaching out. You're still touching people. And right now, Lord God, I pray that, God, you would just continue to change people's hearts, Lord. As a nation, Lord God, we have sinned in so many different ways, Lord. It seems like in this day and age, evil is called good and good is called evil. And Father, right now we stand and we pray and we ask that God, Father, please touch this country. Lord, I know that uh, it begins with us, with individuals, Lord. It begins, Lord God, in our homes. It begins in our communities, Lord. And as we reach out, Lord God, I pray for boldness and I pray for wisdom and I pray for understanding, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us as a people, as your people. Lord, as we think of the nation of Israel, Lord God, throughout the Old Testament, Lord God, and how you called them to be a light to the world, Lord God, and in so many ways they failed. And yet, in so many ways, Lord God, they continue to, to thrive. And so, Lord, we look to you as your people, as your church, that, God, we would be a light, that we would be salt, that we continue to reach those who are around us, Lord God, that, God, you would bring many to you, and that, God, you would use us as instruments, as individuals, and as a, as a church, as a body, to reach out, Lord. And so we look to you and we thank you, Lord. God, even tonight, Lord God, as we open up your word, I pray, Father, for wisdom. I pray for direction and guidance. <clears throat> thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to gather together. I pray, God, that you would help me in conveying what you've laid on my heart, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we start a new book. <clears throat> If you've been with us, uh, we just finished the book of Zechariah, and so now we are moving right into the book of Malachi, which happens to be the last book of the OT. And so if you don't know where, Ze uh, where Malachi is at, then uh, again, just go to, the, to Matthew and turn back a few uh, pages and you'll find it. What I want to do before we jump into our text tonight because we are starting a new book, I want to kind of catch you up a little bit on where we're at. For the last couple of years, we've been in the Old Testament. We've been kind of going through um, just this, this, this timeline. And so before we jump into our text, I want to kind of take you through that timeline. Um, we're not going to jump in right away. And so sit back, relax, don't fall asleep, but relax. Because you're going to go, man, when is this introduction going to stop? And we're going to be in it for a little bit. I just want to give you a heads up up front. Because this timeline that, that again, in this intro to the new book, as we get into it, I, again, we're, we're in this place where it's, we have this picture of all these years, of all this, all this time, this period it gives us this time period which is called the post-exiled or post-exilic period that, that we were in. In the last year, year and a half, we, we've covered several books in this post-exiled period. And, and we started with Ezra, we went into Nehemiah, we went into Esther, and these three books, they conclude the historic books that are found in this present canonical order that we have. They don't go in order, but 
mechanically speaking, they put them in order in the way they went. And I kind of want to go back a little bit to touch on those, because if we can understand where we've been, then when we start this book, you're going, I get it. I know where we're at right now. And I was sharing with you guys last week when we're finishing up the book of Zechariah, that that book was intimidating to me because I hadn't really studied it. I've read through it, but I, I just hadn't studied it a lot. And so when I got into it and I started understanding the timelines and where we were at and what Scripture was saying, it just made way more sense. And that's why I love talking about timelines. I'm going to give you a lot of numbers, a lot of years. Your, your, your eyes are going to probably start rolling back a little bit. You know, slap yourself, stand up, walk around, do whatever you got to do. But I think they're important for us to understand because, again, when we look back at time, we look back at dates, just like we do in our own lives. So there are certain dates that are really important to us as, a, as, as individuals, and there's, there's a lot of dates that are important to us as a country even, right? There's, there's things that we remember, and we go back in history, and so that's where we're at here. These three books that we covered last year, it seemed like, they covered from about 538 B.C. to about 430. A total of 800 years when you look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. 108 years passed by. And again, when we start thinking that in our own little minds, 100 years ago is the early 1900s. 108 years ago. And we're, none of us, I don't think any of us were there yet. Not quite, some of you, yeah. But be that as it may, we, we have 108 years that these three books go through and they're last of the historical, historical books before God goes silent for 400 years. God's not going to say a word for about 400 and some years until Christ is born, until John the Baptist comes on the scene. And so it's important for us to understand that, that in, at about 430 B.C., there was nothing else. Can you imagine if, 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 if our lives, you know, we feel like God's not with us at times because we, we feel like He's left us. It's only been like two days. And we're going, God, where are you? Can you imagine it going on for year after year, century after century, and nobody's ever heard from God? And so it's important for us to understand that, again, we co we're covering these books and now we're covering these prophets because the post-exile prophets that we, we cover in this period are Haggai and Zechariah. And we just got done with those two books last week, but we've been covering for the last couple of months. The book of Zechariah, again, when, 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 when we look at that, we, we have guys like Zerubbabel and Joshua who were in that time frame. And the year of those guys was about 520 B.C. to 518. And they are mentioned, or Zechariah, or Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned in the book of, Zechariah, uh, book of Ezra with Zerubbabel and Joshua. And that was 520 and 518 because we've been covering that time frame for the last several months. And so the timeline for the book of Ezra goes from about 538 to 456. Some 82 years. It's interesting because in between chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra, there is a 57-year gap. The first six chapters are, are, are like 20, 23 years, 26 years. And then that, that 57-year gap. And then at the end, the last several chapters, we get Ezra on the scene, and he's only around for two years. But we see him later on, some 12 years later, over in the book of, of Nehemiah. Now, in that... 57-year gap is when we get the book of Esther. And Esther's time frame is about 483 to, to 473. Now, when we think of 
Nehemiah, that time frame, the book of Nehemiah, he comes on the scene at 444 B.C. And he's around for about 12 years after the book of Ezra. Nehemiah served for about 12 years. And it, it took him to about 432 B.C. And around that time is when Malachi shows up. Malachi shows up at the end of Nehemiah's ministry as governor or a couple years after that. So we're looking at about 430 B.C. that Ezra, or that Nehemiah, got all these names floating through my head. That Malachi, thank you ma'am. That Malachi is on the scene. Some of you have been with us through Haggai and, and Zechariah. Malachi comes on the scene about 90 to 88 years after those guys. So we just finished Zechariah last week. And we have now gone forward another 88 years. And I've shared with you that when, when we're going through Scripture, you go from one book to another, and there's years in between that. Sometimes you go from one book or one chapter to the next, like Ezra, and you've covered 50-some years. Sometimes it's from, from verse to verse. And so sometimes it's important for us to understand these timelines because it's important for us to, to try to get a picture, a grasp, because... Mal Malachi comes on the scene and nobody hears from God after him. Now, he is believed to be the last prophet of the OT, but he really is not. John the Baptist is. John the Baptist dies before Christ, so he is still Old Testament. So John the Baptist was the very last one, but as far as any kind of writing, this is where we have Malachi. He is the last one. And as far as Malachi himself, his name means my messenger. Now what's interesting about this is the fact that some scholars believe that the word Malachi should just be interpreted as a description, my messenger, rather than a name. The name of, of, of a specific man or person. Now, in that line of reasoning, it, it would come to the conclusion that the book here is written by somebody who is anonymous. If it's not Malachi or a man by the name of Malachi. But, but there's no other book, prophetic book, that has ever been written that's anonymous. And so as some scholars might think that, most believe that Malachi was a man, that his name, because the, the, the name or the word Malachi means messenger, that they named him Malachi. And so again, tradition tells us, and we assume, that the book of Malachi was actually written by a person who happened to be a prophet by the name of Malachi. So most believe that he is the last of the writing prophets here. The interesting thing is that we know nothing about this man. We know nothing about his, his ancestry. We, we don't have anything about this guy to really speak of. But the important thing about a messenger is not the messenger himself. It's a message that he brings. It doesn't matter who he is or where he's come from. He brings the word of God. Now, the book of Malachi is written in a style that's different from just about every other book in the Old Testament. All the other prophetic books for sure. You see, instead of making this direct proclamation as most of the prophets do, major and minor prophets, that just come in and just let the people have it. Malachi uses a style that's more of a dialogue, 
kind of a debate, if you will. It, it, it flows like this, kind of. God makes a statement through the prophet. He makes a statement of truth to the people, and then the people deny that, or they, they, they come against it. Then God refutes that argument that they have just made in greater detail. And I kind of think it's fascinating because I don't know if you've ever argued with God or had an argument with God. That you think you're making your case and then He ministers to you in such a way that, it, again, we're fools to think that we can really fight and argue with God and then win that argument. I guess if you're persistent, He would let you just be disobedient and go on with your bad self and then just totally mess things up and He'll be right there with you. But it's almost like that because we see that throughout the book of Malachi that there's this argument going on. Some have said that this is the most argumentative book in the whole Bible. There's questions that are being asked. There's answers that are coming across. There's accusations this way, that way. Against the priesthood, against the people themselves. And as I stated earlier, Malachi ministered right at the end of Nehemiah's ministry. Or, or a couple of years after that, at the close of his book. And we know this because the things that Malachi ministers to us about and speaks about, especially the sins of the people and the rebukes that he's bringing against the people are the very same ones that Nehemiah was dealing with at the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13. When Nehemiah had gone and come back and, and everything's kind of humming, there was still a lot of stuff that was happening. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah deals with the, the priesthood and how they have been defiled. And Malachi, we won't get, that, get into it tonight, but he, he begins to, to deal with the priesthood at the end of chapter, most of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Marriage had become so corrupt in the nation of Israel, even every, after everything God had done for them. Again, in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah deals with that. And so does Malachi in, chapters two, in chapter 2. And then, and then the tithing, the giving, that should have been going to the, the Levites, Nehemiah had to deal with that again in chapter 13, and Malachi does the same thing in chapter 3. And so now the temple has been rebuilt, sacrifices and feasts have resumed, but all these promises from like prophets Haggai and Zechariah are still not fulfilled. Again, it's been 90 years just about of all these promises. So it's left the nation kind of languishing and suffering in disappointment of unfulfilled hope, promises. And it's almost like they've been lulled into this apathy in regards to God, this low, if you will. I think the promise, or the, the problem with God's promises and biblical prophecies is that they just don't happen in our timing. <laughs> when God promises something to us, even as individuals, we often think, it's, it's, on, it's on its way, man. And, and sometimes God tells us, hey, man, my promises are for you right now. And you're going like, right now, and he's going, right now as in next month, right? He's never in a hurry, right? He's never, he's never late, but he's never in a hurry. And so he, he gives us promises, and they are yes, and they are amen, and they will come to pass because he's promised them. And, and oftentimes when we look at the promises, like these people, the nation of Israel, 
Again, God had promised so many things to them after they returned from exile through Haggai and Zechariah, and for 80, 90 years, they haven't been fulfilled yet. And so the nation of Israel needs some reassuring that God still loves them. And a challenge to their disobedience because they have become apathetic once again. And sometimes, again, as I'm studying, as I'm looking through the Old Testament, you, you go, are you guys kidding me? And it never, ever fails. God reminds me of my life and how I become apathetic when there's a lull in my Christian walk because I feel like he's left me. I feel like he just doesn't like me. I thought I was your favorite, God. I just don't feel that right now. And it reminds me, Zeke, it's not about feelings. It's about trusting. It's about in that, in being in that place of hope that I will come through in my time, not yours. And so this is where the arguments begin. <laughs> and so we're only going to cover the first five verses this evening. So Malachi chapter 1 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste the mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been improvised, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down or uh, throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. When we go to verse 1 and we see, again, the burden of the word of the Lord, we've, we've come across that phrase before. When we were covering a few months ago in Zechariah, especially in verse in chapter 9, when we first come across that word. And we've seen it at other times. But just like last time, it can translate into oracle. The word burden can, 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 can be used as oracle, which carries the word prophecy with it. The prophecy of the Lord that is spoken by Malachi. The oracles that are spoken. In other words, these, these are an utterance that's coming from this person. And it's not coming because he's made these things up. The Lord has laid these things on his heart. However, God spoke to Malachi. But he's using him to bring this utterance to the people. Now, whenever the word burden is used in that phrase, in this phraseology here, as, as an oracle or prophecy or burden, it sets a sober mood as he is about to speak, because oftentimes it's, it, it's talking about doom and or judgment that is about to come. In other words, the message is going to be heavy duty. So when the prophet came and he says, here's the burden of the Lord, people were already like, oh, geez, now what did we do? What is God going to tell us now? You see, the prophets were men who personally felt the burden of the Lord heavy on their hearts. Most of them were not priests. They weren't kings. Sometimes they, 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 they had these prophetic words from a priest or, 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 or a king, but these prophets, they were in and among the people for the most part. They sometimes dwelt with people. They, they, they had the pulse of the people. And so when the Lord lay something on their heart, it was heavy. And it was basically like a burden as well. 
because they were the ones that, that felt the heart of the people and the problems of society. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for Malachi to kind of strip away the veneer, the, the surface, the layers of all the piety and all the, the, the piousness of the priests and their hypocrisy. Because again, after they've come back from exile, they set up the priesthood once again. The, the, the altar is done. The, 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 the temple is done. These guys are back in business. And this religion uh, became apathetic once again, just like it had at other times. But the priests were often haughty and pious. And they held that always against the people, even though they were supposed to represent God to the people and the people to God. They often felt like they were above the people. And so we see that this young man or this man, Malachi, is coming and he is going to speak against them because they've led the people astray. I found a quote that said that the task of the prophet was not to smooth things over but to set things right. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a, a, a task that people like. <laughs> there's some of us, man, we, we just want to smooth things over, but there's times when God says enough to speak straight up. Get things in order. Put people in their place. Put them in check. Speak my word and speak it with boldness. That's what these prophets had when they came on the scene. God would use them in a powerful way. And they weren't always the most popular. But in verses 2 and 3, he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Now, that's the way Malachi starts off this book, and you're going, but pastor, you were telling us that they were going to start fighting and arguing. But he starts off by saying, I love you. And it was almost like, as I was thinking about this, it's almost like when a parent is about to discipline their kid. It's like, you know, I love you. And you know, it's like, dang, man, I'm in trouble. And the way he starts off this book, the way he, he brings it across, is quite different, if you remember, the way Zechariah start, starts off his book. Let me read to you the way Zechariah start, starts off his book because he comes on the scene and in, in chapter 1, verse 2 to verse 4, he says, The Lord has been angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preach, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Man, Zechariah, that's no way to win people over. <laughs> the Lord is angry with your fathers. And yet Malachi comes on the scene and, and he shares something that I think would be acceptable to the people to say, here, I got, I got a burden from the Lord. I have, I have a prophecy from the Lord. I have loved you. I have loved you. And the, the statement that he is making here is not that he had ever stopped loving them. He had never stopped loving them. It, it, it could better be phrased, I had, it's not like he said, I had loved you at one time. He hadn't said that. He had always loved them. Again, it's better, better phrased like this, I have always loved you. And I will always love you. Is the way he's coming across. And so when he says that to them, the people, and again, he's playing this, like this side, this side, you know. God says this, but you guys will say this. I have loved you. And yet you, I'm sure he's pointing to the people, would say, in what way have you loved us? In what way? In other words, really? <laughs> How have you shown your love to us lately, God? It's been almost 100 years. 
Where's the promises? And maybe they didn't verbalize it, but they'd be saying, God, if you really loved us, if you really loved us, then we wouldn't be in the place that we're at right now. If you truly loved us, why are we going through what we're going through right now? Because they're in a really low spot. <laughs> so when he says, I have always loved you, and they're going, you haven't shown your love lately. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if you've ever heard God say, I love you. And you're going, then why are you letting me go through this right now, Lord? Why? Why am I struggling with my, with my faith? Why am I struggling with my family? Why are people dying around me, Lord? If you truly loved me, wouldn't everything be going really good right now, Lord? I don't know if you've ever had those arguments. But I think we all go through that. And I think the nation of Israel was in a place of going, you tell me you love me, but I'm hurting right now. And I don't feel your love. I think Malachi brings this up in the fact that he's talking about love. Because the people had a lack of love for God. Because they just didn't feel that God was meeting them right where they needed to be met. It's interesting because when Jesus was speaking to the seven churches in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, one of the first things he mentions is that we, to, to, to the church of Ephesus, I think it is, that you have left your first love. You stopped loving me, man. You didn't lose it. You just left it. And I, and, and I think maybe the reason Malachi touches on this before he touches on, on, on the tithing or on the priests, because I think oftentimes when there's a lack of love for God, from us, it's the source of all, other, all, all kinds of other sins that kind of just creep in. Because we're thinking, well, if you don't love me, then I have every right to go do what I think I should go do right now. I should have the right to go sin because I don't feel your love, Lord. Because there's so many issues going on in my life. But the people that Malachi is preaching to, I have no doubt that they, they, they had a love for God somewhere. But they just stopped. And that's what happens when you become apathetic you really just, it's neither here nor there. God loved them. He loved them even when they're arguing with him. I've always loved you. I hadn't stopped loving you. And yet, they couldn't understand it because they couldn't feel it. And he says to them, well, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, that kind of sounds kind of strange in, in, in our language. Well, the re I, I showed you my love because I chose you instead of Esau. That's what he's saying. I showed you how much I loved you. I preferred you over Esau. I elected you. And somehow he didn't elect Esau. You see, normally in, in, in a family, the firstborn is the one that gets all the blessings. The firstborn is, is the chosen one, the golden child, basically. The first male. And yet before... Before these two twins, Jacob and Esau, were ever born, the Lord had revealed to, to Isaac and Rebekah that the, the younger or the older would serve the younger. Even before they did anything good or bad, God in His sovereignty, the way He does it, I don't know. He had already said, this is the way it's going to work. I will choose that one over that one. And people get uncomfortable when they read this portion of Scripture 
And, it, and, and Paul, he, he, he quotes it over in Romans. But people get uncomfortable going, well, why would God hate Esau? What did Esau do to him? But it wasn't like, I hate you, I hate you. The love that he had for, 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 for Jacob was way stronger for some reason that it seemed like he hated him. And again, you see that with, with, with Jacob when, when it says that he loved, when he loved Rachel more than Leah. It seemed like he hated Leah. He didn't hate her. He just loved Rachel way more. And, and Jesus even gives us that example when he says, you're not worthy to follow after me unless you hate your father, your father and your mother. I'm paraphrasing it because I'm jacking it all up. But, but you guys remember the, when, when he says, unless you love me more than you love your mother and father. And it's not, Jesus never taught us to hate. He just says, the way you should love me would be as if you hated anybody else, everybody else. And so that's what, what the story is, is talking about here. But again, people would have a hard time with that. But it's interesting because even though before anything had ever happened, Esau, Esau, when, when he was hungry, he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. So again, it's not like, for some reason, God knew he's, he's going to give away his birthright anyways. I've chosen this guy over this guy. Esau, Esau became a mighty nation. But God never gave him the covenant that he gave to Jacob. When the Babylonians came, they, they took all that area, not just Israel, but they took all the surrounding areas. Edom, which is Esau, that region, being, being one of them. And yet they weren't restored back. But Israel was. The covenant was with Jacob for some reason that it would be through Jacob that the seed of, of our Savior would be born, not Esau. And so however God chooses, however he, he deals with his election is way beyond me. <laughs> and I know people would have a hard time. Well, how do you know you're, if you're chosen or you're not chosen? How do you know if you're elect or you're not elect? The only simple way to fix that is, well, Choose Jesus, and then you'll know if you were chosen or not. Because it tells us that, that those who come to him, he will in no way cast out. So when people have told me, well, I don't know if God is, has chosen me or not. Well, I'll choose him, and then you'll know. Again, it's almost like, like the guy who, who, who gets to heaven, he's walking, and he goes through a door, and he looks back, and it says, chosen. no, it says, whosoever will. And when he looks back, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. It's like, yeah, but what if I wouldn't? But he knew that. Again, when, when you start talking about God's sovereignty, it's way beyond anything that we could even fathom. And people get all messed up in their heads when they try to figure out the, the sovereignty of God. Again, I don't know why he chose Jacob over Esau. It's interesting, I was, as, I, as I was studying, there was a Methodist minister um, who was a gifted Hebrew Christian teacher. And one of the people came to him and said, man, I have such a serious problem with Malachi chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that Esau I have hated. And the minister looks at the, at the person and says, I have a greater problem with, with Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that he loved Jacob. Because Jacob was a scoundrel. Jake, Jacob was a, 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 a knucklehead. Jacob was, was a guy who would fight with God and against God until he wanted his way. Jacob was a selfish person. Again, people was like, well, I can't believe he hates, he hates Esau. It's like, I can't believe he loves Jacob. <laughs> Jeez. Again, trying to explain the, 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 the sovereignty of God is, is unexplainable for us. Trying to, to understand the love of God and the grace of God, why he shows it to this person and not that person, even though it's, it's open to everybody. 
All we can do is experience God's love. If, if he would love Jacob, then man, he's got to love me. <laughs> I'm not as bad as he is. No, we're all bad. You guys were going, really? You think that, that much? You think that highly of yourself, Pastor. It's like, no, I don't. I just trip out that he does love me. And like one pastor said, I'm so, I think, well, I think it was Spurgeon says, I'm so glad that he chose me before the foundation of the world because if he would have had to choose me after I was born, he might have not chose me. But he has chosen us. the descendants that would come from Jacob continued to have the covenant, not so, with Edom, which is Esau. So somehow God decided to make a covenant with these people and not with those people. But yet Israel, who was the coveted people, the people with the covenant, were to be a light to all, even Edom. But Edom became a very wicked place. The book of Obadiah, the, I was going to say the whole book, it's one chapter, deals with the destruction and the doom of Edom, which is Esau, because of their wickedness. They, they continued to go, and God allowed them to go, but he didn't have the covenant with them. Understand, they're still Jewish. <laughs> they're still part of of, 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 uh, of Abraham and, and Isaac. But they weren't chosen like Jacob was. In verse 5, or 4 and 5, he says, uh, yeah. It says, Even though Edom has said, We, shall be, we have been improv impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. We, we, we've looked at the, the phrase, the Lord of hosts, which is the Lord of, of, of the heavenly hosts, the almighty God, if you will. It's used about 25 times just in the book of Malachi. It's used like 300 sometimes in all of the Old Testament. But Malachi uses that phrase because he's speaking about the, the, the God who fights, the warrior, the one who is on our side. But he's speaking about Edom and how Edom, in their pridefulness, they boasted, the Edomites boasted that, yeah, we've been impoverished for all these years and we will come back and we will rebuild and we will take care of it. We'll, we'll put the land back in shape just the way it used to be. But yet God had other plans for them. He didn't give them the, the, a remnant. He, he, he didn't desire to build them back up. As a matter of fact, when they built up, he says, I will tear it down. Because he's already not chosen them. And they were, they were to, to be in permanent ruin. They didn't have a chance. The Lord called Edom the territory of wickedness. Or as the uh, NIV puts it, the, the, the wicked land. And what a contrast, because in, in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord calls Israel the Holy Land. And so there was a contrast, there was a difference. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't because, again, God, God hated them. Hated, before they were even born, God had already chosen them, and yet these guys went in a different direction. And they missed out on all the blessings because they became a great nation, but they continued to do wickedness. To, to where he calls them the wicked land. And they were dealt with because of their, their wickedness. The Jews, again, when, when Babylon invaded them, they were all taken and so was Edom. But for the Jews, for Israel, when they were taken captive, it was as a chastisement towards them. But for Edom, it was a judgment. They were done. 
if I, if I look at the history and we look at the love that God has had for his people, for Israel, again, whenever they've gone astray, he chastised them, he disciplined them. But he was never going to leave them alone. There was always going to be a remnant that was associated with Israel. And even though they were taken captive, there came a time, a point in time, where there was Cyrus, the king of Persia, a Gentile king, a heathen king, whom God would use to make a decree to enable the Jewish people to return back to Judah and rebuild the temple with his blessing. God did that in them. God provided leadership uh, um, like Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the civic leader. He sent people like Nehemiah and Ezra back to, to, to Israel so that they could build it back up. He sent prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and now Malachi to remind them that God was still speaking that God was still going to minister to them. Had the people obeyed the terms of the covenant that the Lord had, had given them, He would have blessed them beyond measure. But again, when you go to Deuteronomy 28, when it talks about the blessings and the cursings, they are true. They are true even for us. There's, there, there's, there's consequences on both sides when you're obedient and when you're disobedient. And God is true to His Word, guys. If they would have been obedient, they would have been blessed forevermore. <laughs> and yet, even in, in, in that weak remnant that they had, God still had promised to bless them. In this time, and even in that silent period, as we've covered, when, when, when Alexander the Great would come in and protect Jerusalem, when the Maccabees and the people around them would protect Jerusalem, God continued to have His hand upon them, even though He was quiet for 400 years. But He was faithful. He was faithful to send John the Baptist. And it's interesting because John the Baptist, his prophecies are mentioned here in Malachi. And he says at the end here, as we close up, it says in verse 5, your eyes shall see. And you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. He prophesies once again that you're going to see this. You're going to see my hand. And yet they were entering into 400 years of silence. And they would have to remind themselves, God still loves us. God truly loves us. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. He is faithful to his word. He will always be faithful. And there was that small remnant <laughs> that hung on to that to remind them that God would use them one day to reach beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentiles. Guys, you and I are, are here today because of God's faithfulness to reach the Gentiles. That's who we are. He was faithful. Through all the, the hundreds and thousands of years, He has continued to be faithful. At one point, Israel was a great nation with David and Solomon. Man, people were coming from all around to see the, the magnificent magnificence of Israel and the temple and all of those things. To a lesser degree, when, when, when Josiah and Hezekiah were, were on the scene, but man, they were thriving and then they just started to decline. And they went through it for, for years and years. And even through the destruction of Jerusalem, when the Gentiles could have came and mocked them because their God had left them, God was faithful to bring the remnant back to the land. And He wanted them to be a blessing once again, to manifest the glory, the magnificence, magnificence, the glory. <laughs> of the Lord. And yet in many ways they failed to trust Him and to obey His law as a nation, as a whole. But God never left them. He never forsook them. 
He continued to love them. He has always loved Israel. He has never stopped loving Israel. To this day, they are still the apple of his eye. And he will deal with them because he loves them. And as we were covering last week, entering into that millennial kingdom, it's because he loves them. Because he promised that he would all the way through. Guys, we have every opportunity as believers. Again, these, this is written for the Jews, but we can glean from a lot of this. Because the Lord loves you. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And His love never fails. And I know that because of who we are, because of our impatience, because of our doubting, we think that God has left us and He will never leave you, He will never forsake you. Understand that. He loves you. He has always loved you. And He wants us, just like He wanted His, his people Israel, to be a light to the people, to proclaim the glory of the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, as we think about the love that you just expressed here to the nation of Israel, Lord, again, we don't understand election. We don't understand how you choose. We really don't, Lord. But, Father, we receive it. Lord, as you chose the nation of Israel to be your people, not because they were strong, not because they were mighty, because they were nothing. And yet you wanted to use them to be a light to the world. Lord, you have chosen the foolish things, the base things, to confound the wise through your church. Lord, use us. And if anybody glories, let them glory in the Lord. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Use us, Lord, however you deem it proper to use us, Lord, please. We do honor you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.